Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, and we're going to read verses 16 through 20. If you would stand with me as we read God's Word from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. We're going to read verses 16 through 20. This is God's Word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. If you would lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would add your blessing to the preached word. We pray that your spirit would energize and work through these words to get to the hearts of your people. Lord, we pray that we would listen attentively to your word as if it's coming from your very lips. Lord, we know that you are glad to use ordinary, weak vessels to carry your precious treasure. So, Lord, we pray that you would do that again this morning, that you would be the true preacher and that you would bless the lives of your people and equip us for kingdom life. We ask all these things in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Here in Washington, D.C., we are very familiar with elections. Some of you have even had the opportunity to work on presidential campaigns since you've been here in D.C. We're all very familiar with what it takes uh, to win an election, and some of us more so than others, but we are all familiar with the fact that once a candidate is actually elected for for office, for for presidents, one of the things that happens is they are actually officially installed in an inauguration. And in that official inauguration, there's a speech that's given. There's a speech that's given in this inauguration, and, and this speech, it captures everything that the candidate was talking about throughout their throughout their candidacy. They're sort of recapping everything that they, they, they ran on, and they're also looking forward to, to what they plan to do. And in this inaugural speech, what they try to do is they try to rally the American people under their slogan, under their banner, under their vision. And it's interesting if you look back at some of the presidential slogans to see how presidents have tried to to rally American citizens to participate in the civic life of this country. I mean, we could look back to Bill Clinton. His motto was building a bridge to the 21st century. George W. Bush said real plans for real people. Obama said change we need. And President Donald Trump, make America great again. Now remember, this inaugural speech, it's meant to look back, but it's also 
meant to look forward. It's meant to rally the people. It's meant to put a point on things. It's like the, the tip of the spear of their message and their agenda. And they want all American citizens to join them in that way forward. Since January, we've been working on a series about the kingdom of God. And I can think of no more fitting verse for us to close this series with today than by visiting the inaugural address of Jesus Christ in Matthew 28. This is Jesus' inaugural address following his landslide victory over sin, death, and the devil. And this is where he puts a point on his agenda. What, what does he want to do to rally the kingdom people to get them on his agenda going forward? This is summarizing his message that he has shared. And it's also looking forward to what he wants his people to be about in the world. And as we've been walking through this series on the kingdom, we have, we have looked at the imagery of the kingdom. And we, we've seen that the, the imagery of the kingdom, Jesus likened to a banquet. And he extends an invitation to all who will come. We have seen and considered uh, what the king of the kingdom is like when we looked at the story of the prodigal sons and how the longing of this king is to bring rebels home. No matter if they went away from home or if they're they're departed while remaining at home. That's what this king is like. We considered the cost of the kingdom, the cost of following Jesus, counting up the cost of what it will mean to follow him. We've considered prayer as the way that the kingdom gets in and the way that the kingdom gets out. The significance of kingdom prayer. We've considered grace in the life of the kingdom. When we considered the woman who brought her most valuable possession, her alabaster jar, and she broke it to anoint the feet of Jesus. And we saw a grace that captivates and a grace that doesn't just captivate, but activates us. A grace that moves us. We have considered neighbor love in God's kingdom and how kingdom citizens must resist the impulse to reduce the demands of God's love. How we we must resist that impulse to shrink down who is considered a neighbor. And we visited together the idea that in God's kingdom, there's no such thing as a non-neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Everyone that you can help and serve and bless. That's the idea of Jesus in his kingdom. We considered peace in God's kingdom on Easter Sunday. And, and we remembered this, that we can rest in peace because Jesus rose in power. Our peace is secured by, by a resurrection. And that's what we enjoy as citizens of God's kingdom. We also considered relationships in God's kingdom and how those who have enjoyed the debt relief program of God are a people who are themselves called to extend that same debt relief and forgiveness to the people around them. We considered the great debt that has been exhausted for us through a government-backed debt forgiveness program in God's kingdom. And now we must be, of all people, a most forgiving 
and patient and forbearing people. That's what it means to be a part of God's kingdom and have his kingdom life rising up within you. We consider possessions in God's kingdom and the call of Jesus to avoid a selfish accumulation and instead to choose to be rich toward God. And in that time of reflection on that Sunday morning, we remembered the strong words from church father from Africa, Augustine, that the bellies of the poor are much safer storehouses than our own bank accounts. We remembered that word of Augustine that it's probably a better idea for us to pass on as an inheritance to our children a spirit of generosity rather than loads of money and allowing generation after generation to avoid the command. We considered the word of the kingdom and God's desire not just for our growth, but specifically for fruit-bearing growth. What this farmer is looking for, this this kingdom sower, the Lord, is not just looking for seeds that 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 are stolen or, or they grow up for a little while and then they're choked out by the weeds. He's not looking for just any kind of growth, whether it's emotional growth or or financial growth or mental growth or psychological growth. No, he's looking for fruit bearing growth. And that fruit is defined by the New Testament writers. We visited the passages on fruit. That's what God's word is out to produce. We considered the word of the kingdom. We consider the consummation of the kingdom and the fact that we will be judged, that we will be judged by how we treated Jesus in the form of his people in this world. That's how we'll be held account. We'll we'll be held to account by the way in which we treat Jesus in the form of his people among us. Yes, our spouses. Yes, our roommates, our co-workers and our children. It makes us cry out for grace. But these snapshots of life in the kingdom, I'm going to propose to you this morning, must be situated in the larger mission that God has for advancing his kingdom. Everything that we have learned about the kingdom must be situated in in the, the kingly agenda of Jesus. To put it another way, the cumulative effect of a richer understanding of the kingdom should be a sustained commitment to God's mission of advancing his kingdom. Listen, anytime we do a sermon series and we walk through this, it's not meant to make you a smarter sinner. It's not meant to make you a smarter and yet still selfish person. It's meant to change you and activate you along the lines of kingdom formation. So this morning, we're going to try and collect everything that we have considered in this series. And we're going to try and stream it, track it, down God's great mission of advancing his kingdom. And we're going to look at this through two points, three points actually this morning. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. Be ready. I preach like a thief in the night, all right? I kid. We're going to look at the king's command. We're going to look at the king's concern. And we're going to look at the king's commitment, all right? The king's command, the king's concern, and the king's commitment. So let's look at the first point, the king's command. We begin with verse 16. And verse 16 starts off, you may not notice it, but it starts off with a note of sadness. The 11 disciples. It's a reminder. And it's been 12 disciples throughout the entire story. 
of the Gospels up to the point that one betrays and departs and delivers Jesus over. So the mention of 11 disciples is a reminder of their weakness and vulnerability. They are raw with disappointment. But in the passages just before this, there are some women who go to the tomb of Jesus and they discover through the message of an angel of the Lord that Jesus has risen. And that angel instructs them to go quickly and to tell the other disciples that Jesus says to meet them in Galilee at the designated place, which happens to be a mountain. And that is why in our passage we find them climbing a mountain to go to the place where they've been instructed to go. And I just want to make a a note that in Matthew's gospel, mountains figure in pretty importantly in the framing and the message of his of his gospel. Important things happen on the mountains in the gospel of Matthew. It's a theme. It punctuates the story. The temptation of Jesus. He's taken up to a mountain and he's tempted with all of the kingdoms being given to him. He gives his famous sermon on the mount. He goes up with three of his trusted disciples to to be transfigured before them so they can get a snapshot, a picture of his glory before he goes to the cross. And now here we are on another mountain. Important things happen on mountains all through the Bible. But this is where they're at. And I want you to picture it. Have you ever been on a mountain and you've been able to see out over the whole horizon, the vastness of it? I want you to remember that this it's in this geographical context that Jesus issues this statement to his disciples. They can see it's like the bigness of everything surrounding them. And Jesus issues these words to them. I want you to I want you to see that they are they're up on this mountain, but they don't know what to expect. They've been they've been given a message from apparently the resurrected Jesus through a group of women who have come with this message. So they go up, they climb the mountain, they get to the spot. And verse 17 tells us, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some, your text says, doubted. All right. Now, the group that goes up is not just the 11. Most New Testament scholars believe that there's a bigger, wider group of disciples who had come along. They heard that Jesus, who was just crucified, sent a message after being raised from the dead for his disciples. I got to go see what's going to happen. So they all go up there. They go up on top of the mountain. And when they see Jesus, it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I want you to see what's happening here. This is a crucial moment. This is a group of God fearing Jews has been raised to confess throughout their entire lives that worship belongs to God alone. Deuteronomy 6. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Elohai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone is one. Worship him with all your hearts and with all your minds and with all your soul and with all your strength. Worship belong to one. So I want you to see something here. First of all, there is a group that immediately bows down. They immediately make the connection that this Jesus is who he claimed to be and he is one with the Father. He is God himself. But there's another group. Your text says that they doubted, but that's not the most favorable translation for understanding what's happening here. The more favorable translation is some hesitated. 
They didn't know what to do. Because it's fixed in their minds. You worship the Lord alone. But here's Jesus risen from the dead. And then Jesus steps in and he says, let me remove all hesitation. All authority has been given unto me. (laughs) With that statement, he lands on them with the most profound significance. This is this is. This is what he's doing with this statement. He's saying, it's okay. You can worship me. I am the Lord that you have known throughout the ages. I am that same God that you know of throughout the Old Testament. I am one with him. The Lord dispels the confusion. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It echoes this statement all the way back to the garden. And I want to remind you of where we started this series in Mark chapter one. We are reminded when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes on the scene as a second Adam. The first Adam, he's tempted. Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, he's tempted in a garden, right? He's tempted in a garden. He fails. He gives into the temptation. He sins, disobeys. He brings ruin into the world. Jesus comes as the second Adam. He is tempted in a similar way. He's confronted by the evil one. And he resists him. And it's a massive statement that says, I'm going to pick up what the first Adam has destroyed. The first Adam lost the kingdom. And I, as the second Adam, will regain and restore that kingdom. That's what I've come to do. And I want you to get hip to something. One of my systematic theology professors, he made this statement that I think is just deeply profound. And I want you to listen to this. He said... That we can presume that back in the garden, Adam was expected to get to a place of extending God's rule in his reign. Because remember, he was called to to have dominion over the world, to have dominion over the earth, to extend the rule and the reign of God, to extend the glory of God as God's image bearer, representing God's rule and reign in the world. Adam and Eve, queen and king, were supposed to extend this rule and this reign throughout the globe. And my, 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 my main man, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, says we can presume that Adam was expected to get to a place where he could say it is finished. I have finished the work, Father. I have made your glory known to the ends of the earth, Father. The entire world is reflecting your glory, Father. And this was the devastating loss that happened when Adam sinned. But when Jesus says all authority has been given to me. He's announcing that that dominion has been reclaimed through his obedience to the father, that the ancient foe who defeated our parents in the garden has been overcome. He's proclaiming his authority over death, sin and the devil. The grave can't even tell him what to do. That's real power. That's all authority. And as I say all the time, Jesus, if his disciples had asked him authority over what Jesus, he'd have said, pick something. Authority over everything that scares you. Authority over everything that oppresses you. Authority over everything that plagues you and binds you and harms you. Authority over everything that makes you live a small-hearted existence. I have authority over it all. Everything that opposes you. I have authority over it. All authority has been given unto me. He is Lord of all. And this... Y'all is the ground of everything 
that he's about to tell them to do. This is the ground. He has the authority. He's the Lord of all. Now, I want you to think about this. Could you imagine these disciples saying to the risen Christ at this point? Actually, you know, I got so much going on right now, Jesus. I don't really got time for this thing. I got enough projects going on in my life. Work is crazy. Could you imagine them saying that to him? Jesus is like, all authority. (laughs) Could you imagine them saying, well, Jesus, I believe in you, but I'm just so concerned about what other people might think about me. I don't want to upset the apple cart. You know, I, I don't want people to ridicule me or mock me for having, quote unquote, outmoded beliefs. I'm scared, Jesus. Jesus would go. All authority has been given unto me. <laughs> but Jesus, you know, I, I don't want to be pushy, you know. I'm not I'm not exactly sure what to do. So I was thinking about just kind of hanging out and being a a halfway decent person. And, you know, maybe one day that will never come. I'll be forthright about the hope of the gospel. All authority. All authority has been given unto me. This is the ground. I want you to remember this. This is they've gone through a lot of turbulence. Man, their emotions are like, woo, 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 woo. Some of you sisters know about this during pregnancy. Your hormones are going like this. And one time you're laughing and then you're crying. It's like, this is how the disciples were experiencing this time. They just saw Jesus brutally executed. Now they see him alive. Now he's telling them to go out. All people were just trying to kill him. And they ran because they were afraid that they were going to try and kill them as well. And Jesus says, Go. All authority has been given unto me. Go. But I want you to think about something. When you're flying on an airplane and you hit turbulence. Now, some of us may have a greater capacity to handle that than others. I don't do well with turbulence. When that plane gets to rocking and dipping and swaying, I break out in a cold sweat like James Brown. Uh, I, I, I get nervous. I get afraid. But, you know, there's something that always happens at that time. There's a voice that comes on the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, we're experiencing a little bit of turbulence. Nothing to fear. We're going to head through these clouds. And we'll be at your destination in about two hours. Sit back, have a coat, and enjoy. The person who has control of the plane issues assurance to you that no matter what the turbulence feels like, he's in control. And it's that statement of control that often makes you say, okay, all right. We're going to be all right. This is this is what this is the way it is. And Jesus is getting on the intercom of his disciples lives. And he's saying, brothers and sisters, all authority has been given unto me. I want you to sit back, have some communion wine, some bread. I want you to go out of my power and authority and make disciples. That's essentially what Jesus is doing. I'm in control. All authority is given unto me. That's the king's command. He is the commander. He's the commander. But this leads us to think about the king's concern, point two. In verse 19, we see the central concern of Jesus in his inaugural speech. Make disciples of all nations. Why? Because here's here's the reason why. Discipleship is pervasive. You can't avoid being a disciple. 
You all are disciples of someone or something. We follow. That's what we do. You might think you're totally autonomous. Nonsense. We all follow some script. We all follow some leader. Jesus knows this. We're all disciples of some sort. And we live in a disciple-making world, don't we? From the the advertisements we read, that's disciple-making. The advertisements that we experience, disciple-making. From the education and the curricula that we face in our children's schools and all other places, it's disciple-making. It's trying to form in you a way of thinking about life, the world, your goals, your dreams, your ambitions, what you ought to love, what you ought to value, what you ought to devalue. The world is constantly making disciples. And Jesus says, if you don't make disciples of Jesus, of me, then they will be disciples of of lesser things and insufficient saviors. The question with which we are confronted by scripture is this. Are you following the one who has a reputation for emptying the grave? Are you following the one that says all authority has been given unto me? Jesus gives his disciples a dual focus, his authority and their commission to the world. He sends them into the world and he's going to continue his earthly ministry through them. Now, I want you to think about all the alternative endings that could have happened here. Jesus could have appeared to his disciples on that mountain and the story could have ended with Jesus taking his people off to heaven and evacuating the sinking ship. You've heard people say that doing good in this world is like polishing the brass on the Titanic. Jesus could have just said, come on, y'all, let's let's float away. Peace. You know, Jesus could have could have quarantined his people to prevent contamination from the world. He could have said, now, this is what I want you all to do. I want you to build walls around little Cities, And I want you to have your own little secret enclave. And I want you to be away from the world. Don't interact with anybody in the world. Just hang tight. I'm going to make this thing new again. But in the meantime, don't defile yourself by being around all those sinful people. He could have said that. But Jesus doesn't teach them to build walls. He teaches them to build bridges. He sends them out instead of all these alternative endings. He sends them out. He doesn't leave them in a defensive posture, y'all. He leaves them in a kingdom offensive posture. Do you ever find yourself living in a, in a defensive posture? Like, I, I, I'll, I'll know what I believe and I'll know what I think. But, you know, if anyone tries to come at me, I'll, I'll do the defense, the jujitsu. Boom, boom. I can defend. But do you think about advancing the offensive, making inroads with the truth claims of the Christian faith? Jesus really did get out of the grave. That is a stubborn fact of the Christian faith. And that truth is what we must advance. Yeah, yeah, you're afraid of feeling like you're going to look stupid. Okay. All authority. You're afraid you're going to come across pushy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. Listen, very few of you are at risk of coming across pushy. But many of you are at risk of never actually getting around to the message. That's the kind of church, that's the kind of gathering we have. We have people who are contextualizers, right? You got to make sure your heart for contextualization doesn't turn into a heart of cowardice. We must bring the the facts, the truth claims of the gospel and invite people to wrestle with it. 
There's nothing more beautiful and friendly than sharing your real life with people. Is Jesus really your life? Then to share your life is to share him. It's not, it's not rocket science, even though we truly have rocket scientists in here. <laughs> you guys are super capable, gifted, likable. Share. Bring your faith to bear in your relationships. That's what Jesus has called his people to. He's going to scatter them and send them to people on the offensive. Later in Acts, instead of the come together, let's hide, come together, let's hide or fly, fly his people out. He sends them out. And later in the book of Acts, when they try to stick together and stay put in one place, Jesus sends persecution on them to scatter them so that they will actually go into the world, to the places where they didn't plan on going. They didn't plan on going to the Samaritans. They didn't plan on going to the ends of the earth. They didn't plan on going to the black African, the Ethiopian eunuch. They didn't plan on going to Antioch. They didn't plan on going to any of the number of places that ended up being centers of vibrant Christian faith and mission. But we see God's heart through the work of the Spirit in that. And I want you to look at who Jesus is commissioning his followers to disciple. All nations. Now, that phrase in your English Bible is a little bit obscured. But in the Greek text, it says pantata ethne. Ethne. What's it sound like? Exactly. Ethnic. Ethnicity. Go to all the ethne. Now, if you look at a Greek lexicon, if you look at a Greek dictionary, there are two definitions for what ethnos means. First one, a body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions. A nation, a people group. People groups foreign to a specific people group. That's meaning number two. And I think that it's meaning number two that Jesus has in mind, which simply means this. Go to all the people who are different people groups than you. Go to all the people who aren't like you. Go to those people. It's cross-cultural ministry that's built into this great commission. And it's based upon the authority of Christ. Now I want you to hear me. I'm going to stop talking about cross-cultural mission, cross-cultural ministry, cross-cultural community when the Bible stops making an end of teaching it. But until then, you're going to have to put up with me. Because this call is based upon the authority of Christ. This isn't for people who enjoy the cross-cultural as a hobby. This, is, this isn't for the people who, who find different people groups interesting, but if you don't like different people groups, then you're off the hook. No, this is central to what the church has said for for many years is is an essential teaching of the Christian faith. Disciple making. If you put it together with Genesis one, culture making, extending the rule and reign of God, his dominion around the world and also disciple making, culture making, disciple making. You have a more full orbed idea of what Jesus is out to do through his people. But I want you to see that there's cross cultural at the very heart of it. This is not an add-on. This is, this is not the dipping sauce that goes on your Chick-fil-A sandwich. This is the chicken. <laughs> Hallelujah. Right? This is, not, uh, this is not salt or pepper or ketchup. This is the entree. It cannot be separated from the disciple-making endeavor. All nations. All nations. It's based on the authority of Christ. Well, Jesus, we don't have anything in common. All authority, all nations. 
Well, well, Jesus' ministries grow faster if you go after people who are like you. All authority, all nations. You know why I'm not discouraged that we we don't have 2,000 people in this room right now? Because we're actually attempting something that is extremely difficult. And that is to grow a cross-cultural community. Because the gravitational pull of life in this world is to be around people who are like you. And of course you can grow a ministry on the homogeneous unit principle. Which was a principle back in the 1980s that the way to grow a church real fast and powerfully is to tailor it to one homogeneous people group. Even if your neighborhood is diverse. Forget about all the diversity in your neighborhood. Forget about all the different people represented. Step over those people to get to those people. Step over these people to get to those people. You'll find the people who are like one another. You'll collect them fast. And you'll grow a big church and you'll have lots of money. And then later on you're going to realize that you missed the mark. Because you built something fast. You didn't build something true. This is on the authority of Jesus. This is what's happening in the text. I want you to see something. It's about obedience to his calling over our lives and shockingly over our local churches. Let me ask you, friends, where have you seen baptism take place? In the church, the local church. Last time I checked, there wasn't a mobile baptism mobile, although they exist. There wasn't a mobile baptism mobile going down the street in Northeast. Where does the primary bulk of teaching come from in the local in the local church? Do you see Jesus' vision is that a cross-cultural mission will result in a cross-cultural church? Cross-cultural local churches, local expressions of God's love for the fullness of our particular places. This inaugural address of Jesus is the great announcement of AD living. AD, the year AD. You know what that A.D. stands for Anno Domini and the year of our Lord. This is the great statement of A.D. living and to avoid cross-cultural relationships, to avoid disciple making specifically in a cross-cultural context, to ignore all authority is to live a B.C. existence in an A.D. context. It's to live as if he didn't come and rise from the dead. But we live in the year of our Lord, the risen one, the all authority one. This is the agenda that is set. Bring all under my authority, every culture, every issue, every social dynamic. Bring it all under my authority. And just remember, it's a co-mission. It's Jesus' mission first. And for us, for us, it's participation in what he's already doing. That's what that's what it means to think as a missionary. Where's God at work? Now let me join that work. And Jesus already tells you his agenda is cross-cultural. But let me bring our final point, the king's commitment. Now listen, it's powerful and helpful to know that we are sent out on the basis of all authority. All authority belongs to the one who sends us. It's helpful to know exactly what he's sending us to do, what his concern is, the, the king's command and the king's concern. But You know what really, really hits the spot for people who wrestle with the fears and anxieties and stresses that we have? The king's commitment. Verse 20. If you think about all and the way that all is used, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. 
That can seem daunting, but he anchors this this commission with a great commitment. I will be with you. I will be with you. How many parents of small children know that one of the most frequent questions that you get when you tell a child to do something is, are you, are you going to come with me? Uh-huh. Like, I'm sending you so I don't have to go downstairs. <laughs> but that's not how the Lord does. He goes with the people that he sends. He's with us. The one who has overcome the world is with us. The one who has all power is with us. And this should lead us to bold humility, courageous acts of love as we move forward to make disciples. Matthew started his gospel by announcing the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us. And then he bookends his gospel with this promise from Jesus, I will be with you. And everything in between is full of the presence of Jesus with his people. This brings his gospel to a fitting close. And it brings our series to a fitting close as we labor to advance God's kingdom. Let me close by revisiting our opening illustration. Jesus is the king elected by the father. He swore by covenant in eternity past to redeem this fallen world and to bring many children to glory. And in his inaugural speech, he's driving home his kingdom agenda and he's calling all kingdom citizens to join in his kingly agenda for this world so that his glory will cover the earth. I mean, President Clinton talked about building a bridge to the 21st century, but King Jesus has built a bridge to eternal glory. President Bush made real plans for real people, but King Jesus fulfilled redemptive plans for ruined people. President Obama talked about change we need, but King Jesus alone delivers the change we need. President Trump wants to make America great again, but King Jesus is going to make the entire created order glorious again. So let's remember that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So let us repent and believe in the gospel. Let us seek the kingdom first and trust God for the rest. And let us pray for the fullness of the kingdom to come not only in our own hearts, but also to advance in our neighborhoods, on our blocks, and in our city. And as we seek to see it come to pass, let us join our faith together and pray as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.